0: I wanna introduce you to two of, not really my Russian friends, but they're two Russians. Their names are Vadim Makarov and Vitali Ruskalov. These two are brave and I would say stupid men. Because in 2014, these two took two hours to free climb the unfinished 2,130 foot Shanghai Tower in China. Now, that doesn't quite give you the full grasp of it, you see, because at the top of this tower in 2014 was a crane that extended even further up in the sky. And their ascent to the top of this crane was done without harnesses or straps or even parachutes. Now, they're stupid because if they fall, they dead. There is nothing that can help them. Now, to, to go alongside with them you can go with them up this ascent up the Shanghai Tower because on top of their heads were GoPro cameras. I don't know if you know what a GoPro camera is, but it's a small camera that's been able to place onto helmets or shoulder straps to give you a first person perspective of any event being performed. In this case, it was of these two men climbing one of the world's largest buildings without any ropes, without any straps, or even without a parachute. So, as Vadim and Vitaly climb this monstrosity, you witness them dangling their feet over the side of the Shanghai Tower. You witness what it's like to climb a tower on the top of the biggest building in Shanghai, like it was a playground. And yes, this includes them climbing above clouds that were thou- a thousand feet below them. When I watch it, I, I get the, like the hot sweats on my back, and I just I, I am not very comfortable. Just watching it through their eyes teaches me a lot. Now, what does it teach me? That to walk in their shoes, a half a mile in the sky, seeing through their perspective, that I don't want to do that. (laughs) That it's actually incredibly stupid to climb one of the world's largest buildings by themselves. I mean, there really are stupid people in the world, and Vitaly and Vadim are perfect examples. But when we walk in a, a mile in another's shoes, like we do with them, we can learn a lot. But we are all so reluctant often to walk in another person's shoes. We often tend to live in the little bubble that is our home or our world or our neighborhood, our political parties, whatever it might be, we are reluctant to see the world through someone else's eyes. And it's because we're self-centered. I'm not saying that we're called to embrace every aspect of life. But there is a sense in which we can learn a little bit about life and what it means to live when we live through someone else's eyes or when we walk in someone else's shoes. Stop, sorry. This morning, I want us to walk in the shoes of the man who was healed by Peter and John. I wanna put the GoPro on his head that we might see what he sees, that we might experience freshly what he experienced, that we might learn what God is actually doing in the midst of this story and then apply it to our lives. So let's put the GoPro on our man who was lame from birth and sees what he sees. The first thing that this man sees are eyes. So the first thing I want you to see is and focus on are the eyes. In verse four, we read the following. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at this, look at us. Look at us. The eyes of the apostles were directed on this lame man who had been lame from birth. And this had to be different for him. It was probably rare for someone to look at him and say, look at me. Perhaps this is reading too much into the story, but the man probably spent more time trying to get people to look at him. And yet the apostles, their eyes are directly on him. And the man who had been placed at the entrance of the temple every day of his life had probably felt something he hadn't experienced in a long time, and that is some dignity. My guess is he probably began to start to feel invincible that no one paid attention to him, no one would recognize him, that he was just some beggar at the entrance of the temple. Nothing made him stand up, stand out, excuse me. And into the midst of this meaninglessness, into this objectivity, you know this, and I know this, probably came lies, that he doesn't matter, that he was insignificant. I mean, this is our experience in our celebrity culture, that if we're not famous, that we don't matter. For him, He probably felt worthless just begging every day, not working, not contributing to society, not having a family. In that day, people were known for what they could do for their work. But into the midst of this seemingly invincibility, the eyes of the apostles were directly on him. And they said, look at me. Verse five, he fixes his attention on them and he expects to receive something from them. And he sees the eyes of these apostles. And these eyes, if you will, have seen a lot, haven't they? In the past few months, they had seen Jesus arrested. They had witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. But then three days later, they witnessed Jesus' resurrection. And then following 40 days later, they saw Jesus ascending to heaven. And now, in the midst of the book of Acts, they have witnessed the giving of the Holy Spirit with tongues of fire standing on the heads of the apostles. They have seen a lot. But in the disciples looking at this man in this way, we also know that these eyes have been transformed. Let me show you why. In, in John chapter nine, it's related to this story. These eyes, the eyes of the apostles, see another man who is begging. Now this man was blind from birth and they looked at Jesus and they treated this man with objectivity. They didn't see him for a man. They saw him as an opportunity for a theological discourse with Jesus. And these disciples said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? They didn't see the man for who he was. They just saw him for a theological discourse. But notice the disciples now they're looking directly at a man. And they're saying, look at us. These eyes have been transformed. They are with a man, not overlooking him, not objectifying him, but looking at him. The eyes communicate so much. And they eventually say to him, look, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. What do these eyes teach us? The eyes of the apostles. Because if we're seeing it through this man's perspective, what does it teach us? Those eyes staring directly at this man. You know, each week I have a unique perspective preaching to you. And, and if I lock eyes on you, and I'll do it right now, most of you will you know, dart your eyes. There's something about Eyes, especially if some sort of authority figure, that it's too much. It's like, I can't, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be known. And yet here are the apostles saying, look at us. What does this teach us? I think very simply, it's this. At least one lesson. And that is this. That no one is invincible and meaningless. There is no one who is invincible and meaningless. The lame man who's been lame since birth, the blind man who's been blind since birth are not insignificant. They're not invincible and meaningless to Jesus and his disciples. The eyes of Jesus and his disciples look at those that people won't want to look at and they will give them meaning and significance. Everyone is worthy of respect and love whether they feel it or not. Now this doesn't mean that every person can live how they want. Many people hear this love and respect and think that's exactly what it means. That's not what it means. It simply means that everyone is worthy of being looked at. Everyone is worthy of not being ignored. And yes, we as Christians can easily fall into this by closing off our world to people who offend our sensibilities or don't embrace the life that we live. We just push them away. No one is invincible or meaningless. The eyes of the disciples are showing us that very thing. People are meaningful and worthy of being looked at. I think this is one thing that those eyes teach us. It's something we must learn ourselves. So we put the GoPro on this man's face and he has the eyes of the apostles looking intently at them. And it teaches this man that he is meaningful and significant, that he is not invincible. But the second place that I want the GoPro of this man to for you and I to look at are the feet, are the feet. His eyes go from their eyes to his feet. Look with me at verse seven. You can see how the GoPro of this man could eventually go there. Peter took this man by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. These are feet that had never felt the strength of the tibia and fibula locking into place. Feet that had never truly felt what the floor feels like. Whether that be a dusty floor, whether that be a firm concrete floor, or grass. The feet felt something. And my guess is his eyes were intently on his feet. Holy cow, I can walk but his eyes don't stay down on his feet very long, do they? Because once that tibia, amphibia set into place, verse eight, it says he is leaping up. He stood and began to walk, and he enters the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, you get this sense with this, you know, recurring word of leaping, walking, that this man is skipping around the temple. He is overjoyed. He can walk, he can move, and who can blame him? Have you ever been to a trampoline park with a young kid, I love watching like a three or four year old bounce around on the trampoline. This is what I envisioned this man doing, just hopping around on the trampoline, enjoying what it means to leap and to jump for the first time in his life. And who can blame him? It's so incredible. He can walk, he can leap. And of course, all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. There's so much joy just looking at this man's feet and we can understand it. But I think it's worth considering the reason for his joy. Consider this, and it's pretty simple to think through, but there's three things that I think of that we can understand for his joy. He's joyful because he can walk. He's no longer dependent on someone to take him to the bathroom. Think about that. In the middle of the night, he can get up and go to the bathroom. How joyful that is. He's no longer dependent on someone bringing him food. No longer dependent on people for him to do the most ordinary activities of his day. Perhaps now he can get married, have a family. His ability to walk opens the world to him in ways that he's never experienced before. He can walk. He's not only joyful because he can walk, he's joyful because now he can work. He no longer has to beg for his living. I mean, every day someone put him at the front of the temple that he might beg for alms. No longer does this apply. This man can walk and have an occupation. Our very own Caitlin Mooney this week told me, we were talking at a dinner about occupation, and, uh, and she said this, and it stood out to me. She says, one of the things that we learned in occupational therapy school is that occupation gives meaning to life. His ability to walk gives him the ability to have an occupation. So it's not just his ability to walk, his ability to work. And his ability to work gives this man much more meaning and significance in life. He's joyful because he has meaning and significance now. He can make a living on his life. All the delight that comes from being able to work and provide, and live, and not being dependent. But I think he's joyful not only because he can walk and work, he's joyful because he can worship. I think that there is somewhat of an ironic reality to this. The man is on the outside of the temple. He's never inside the temple. He's always on the outside of the temple. And the first thing that he does when he's able to walk, where does he go? He goes into the temple, and he worships. He's able to understand for the first time in his life what God is and who he is and what he can do. And his natural response is to worship. I don't know if, you know, I'm sure he went into the temple before, but he went into the temple in this category, in this world with his feet and he's worshiping. And he's joyful because he knows who God is and what he can do and he's giving him the praise. He's joyful because he can walk. He's joyful because he can work. He's joyful Because he can worship. When we take the GoPro and look at his feet, wow, we see some amazing things. But what is the lesson it teaches us? I think it teaches us this. The transformation that Jesus brings is greater than we could ever imagine. What was the man hoping for from Peter and John? He was hoping for money. But what did he get? He got feet. And Feet brought him so much more than he could ever realize. And the joy that came as a result of it was astounding. I mean, you could have slipped $100 million into his pocket, and it would not have brought the same joy that Feet did. The transformation that Peter and John brought through the name of Jesus was greater than he could ever imagine. And the joy that followed this was absolutely astounding. You see, the parallels between this man, I think, and many people that come to church looking for better morals and a good feeling, it's, it's crazy. Because Jesus offers to us more than morals and new feelings. He offers to us new life, a greater transformation. To those of you who have looked to Jesus in faith, resting and receiving from him his gift of salvation, there is a radical transformation that takes place. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, that is if anyone has rested and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, he is a new, get this, creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation for those of you who believe in Jesus. No longer are you defined by your guilt and shame, you're defined by your union with Christ, being united to him and oh what a lens to see this about ourselves, to take this on, to see the world in the light of our transformation that Jesus brings through faith. And oh, what freedom this brings. Oh, what joy it brings to us. The transformation that Jesus brings is greater than all our imaginations can imagine. Too many of us have not taken hold of this transformation that is brought through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the spirit. The life of a new birth. It's a glorious transformation. Oh, those of you that are in Christ, who have been reborn, consider this gift. It's a glorious transformation. You are secure in Christ. There is nothing that you can do, there is nothing that you need to do, So that God might love you. He loves you and has changed you. Rest in that. It's a beautiful transformation. Live in that. It's so much better than good morals. So much better than good feelings. And yes, good morals and good feelings are fruit of that union. And oh, we have that. This is what the feet of this man teach us. This is a lesson that the feet of this man teach us. That the transformation that Jesus brings is far greater than we can ever imagine. So we put the GoPro on this man and we see the disciples' eyes and those eyes teach us that there is no one who is meaningless and insignificant, no one that's invincible. And then we look down and we see the feet and we see, oh, the transformation that Jesus brings is far greater than our imagination can ever conjure up. It's beautiful. But there's one last thing I want you to see with this GoPro on this man. And that's the speech. The speech. As you can imagine, this lame man doesn't want to leave the side of Peter and John. He has just received from them the greatest gift that he could ever have been given. He'd been treated with dignity and respect and he has experienced a radical transformation. Nothing like this has ever happened to him. So he isn't going anywhere but with Peter and John. Thus, it's no surprise to us that in verse 11, we read that he is clinging, clinging to Peter and John. I want you to just see this in your mind, just this man holding on to them. Likely he's holding on to Peter's hand. And while he's holding on to Peter's hand, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's here or if he's on his knees and he's just holding on, it doesn't matter, but while he's holding on, Peter opens his mouth and gives a speech. So from our perspective in the GoPro of this man's head, we're very close to Peter and Peter begins to speak. And he's speaking to those in the temple who are watching this and are amazed at what is taking place. In this speech, there's a lot going on and I'm not gonna break it down fully but I want you to see it in three different parts and in in, in a nutshell understand what Peter is trying to tell to the people who are watching this event and see it from this man's perspective first as Peter begins to speak he speaks of how the man was restored in verses 12 through 16 he begins this stretch by talking about Jesus who he is and what he had done and especially what had been done to him by these people If you understand it, Peter is in the temple, and he's making a very bold speech in the midst of this temple. But look at what he says in verse 16. Here he's telling how the man was ultimately restored. And he says this, and his name, by faith in Jesus' name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So first, Peter's speech speaks to have the man was restored through faith in Jesus' name. The second thing the speech communicates to these people and to us is, is Peter telling them how men can be restored in verses 17 through 21. So he, he he changes it from how this man was restored, and now he's going, how men, how you can be restored in verses 17 through 21. And we see this in verse 17 when Peter pivots from talking about the restoration of this man to the restoration of the people. He says, brothers, listen. See, it's a pivot. It's a you. And now I'm gonna talk to you how you can be restored. Now, he doesn't hold back on them. Once again, he tells them that they killed God. They killed God. That you, you have to realize what you did is wrong, whether it's done ignorantly or purposefully. What you did was wrong. And this ignorance, whether or not it, it still warrants judgment. You are still guilty. But then he says in verse 19, there is a way for you who have killed the living God to be restored. And that comes in verse 19 when he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Yes, just as Peter and John brought restoration to the man who was lame from birth, so does Jesus bring restoration to those who repent and believe. Restoration from their sins, thus bringing forgiveness and life through Jesus. So Peter's speech explains how the man was restored. It explains how we as people can be restored to the living God. And finally... Peter is adamant about how men can be restored in verses 22 through 26. This last part of his speech is simply an amplifier of what has already been said. And he turns to the prophets of old saying, look, the prophets are talking about this. Moses in verse 22, he says, said that God will raise up a prophet like me and that the people of God should listen to him and that those who don't will be destroyed. Peter's not holding back. He's like, guys, this is the prophet. And if you turn back to him, you will be destroyed. He's amplifying, you wanna find restoration, you gotta look to Jesus. If you don't look to Jesus, you will be destroyed. And then he goes on and quotes Samuel and all the other prophets and says to them, hey, look, all those other prophets that followed Moses, they're saying the same thing that Moses did. You wanna find restoration in your heart? You gotta look to Jesus. So this is the speech. Consider the speech once again from the perspective of the man clinging to Peter. My guess is as he listened, his jaw was on the floor. I mean, he had been restored himself, but now there is a restoration to all that are in this temple. Restoration to the people who objectify him every day as they walked into the temple. What are the lessons that he learns and we learn from this speech? I think it's first this, that salvation in Jesus' name is much, much greater than we could imagine. That we can have forgiveness of sins, that all people could be restored. This man experienced salvation from his lameness, but he hears that salvation and restoration from our sin is possible even for those who killed God. This leads me to the second lesson that we can learn from this perspective, that salvation is possible even for the worst of people. And we have to realize this. Those who killed the living God are offered hope, hope of being restored. And this is hard for us to consider. You guys know that I love my buddy Hal Farnsworth, and the times that I spend with him are always very memorable. And I want to share with you a, a story that I've shared with some of you out and about. But how the other day, he said, you know, I just had a hankering for a Big Mac, and I hadn't had a Big Mac in 22 years. So I said, Lord, you must want me to go get a Big Mac. So I did. I went to McDonald's for the first time in years to get a Big Mac. And as I'm standing in line to get my Big Mac, I started talking to the lady in front of me. And this guy, he's, he, he'll talk to anybody. And the lady in front of him was there. And he says, hey, how's it going? She said, good. And she saw the shirt that he was wearing, Downtown Ministries. And she says, oh, I love Downtown Ministries. And he goes, oh, yeah, you go to church. And he said, at that point, her head dropped. And she says, no, I don't go to church. He said, why is that? You, you, what, you, you know Christianity? Yes, sir, I do know Christianity. Why don't you go to church? Oh, it's because I've done bad things. And he says, what do you think about Christianity? This is in the line of McDonald's. Like, what is happening here? And she says, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And he said, well, that's true. But what happened to the good stuff that Jesus earned? She says, well, I don't know about that. He said, where do you think that goes? And she said, I don't know. He says, it goes to you. Jesus gets the bad stuff. You get the good stuff. So it's not about you being good and whether or not you go to church. And in that story, Hal is teaching her and us that salvation is possible for the worst of people because it's not a matter of whether you are obedient and going to church is a matter of obedience. No, it's about Jesus being obedient for you Dying in your place and giving you his righteousness, and church ain't about being righteous and moral and good and all that stuff. No, it's just resting and receiving what Christ has done and rejoicing in that, because salvation comes to the worst of people. Our story teaches us that, and so does this story. The people who killed God can be restored. Finally, I think salvation, we see this. It teaches us that salvation comes through repentance and faith. (laughs) Repentance simply means turning from our ways, living life in a self-centered way, recognizing that this way leads to destruction and turning to Jesus for his mercy. If You've always felt too bad for God. If you, like that woman in the line at McDonald's, felt like I I needed to clean my life up before I could go to church, you, you don't need to. You can be restored today with the living God through repentance turning away from your self-reliance and turning to God who is rich in mercy because of Jesus. Look to the one who died for you and who gave you his righteousness and you yourself will be restored. Salvation comes through this repentance and faith. This is what this speech teaches us if you have this salvation, may you know with wonder and amazement the great salvation we have. And may you join in our our, our song that we will sing in just a moment with great fervor and enjoyment, knowing that indeed, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. It is sweet. And if you don't know it, indeed, believe it, it is sweet to trust in Jesus. My friends, we have placed the GoPro on this lame man in Acts chapter three. And we've seen the eyes of the apostles looking directly at him that communicate that there is no one that is meaningless and insignificant, including the lame man. We have seen his feet and we've understood that indeed the transformation that Jesus brings is greater than our, our wildest imagination. And we have seen through the speech of Peter that salvation can come to the worst of people, even to the people who killed God, and that that salvation comes through repentance and faith. What a beautiful thing it is to walk a mile in another person's shoes. It can teach us a lot. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we give thanks to you for this passage of Scripture, one that can easily be missed if we go too fast. But this man, this this lame man who was lame from birth and the experience of salvation that he had that day in the temple, oh, it teaches us so much. Oh, would we take hold of the lessons that this story teaches us and apply them to our life today, especially the one of salvation that those of us who have been saved, that we would rejoice in it and give you the praise and honor and glory that is due to your name because of the great salvation we have. And to those in here who who have not even considered that, oh, that they would take this and find the sweetness that comes in the name of Jesus. Amen.